Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm Holly Rubenstein. I'm a travel and entertainment journalist. And here each week, I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with, to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. Well, the travel prospects were pretty gloomy last week, so I'm really happy to be back today with some better news that here in the UK, fully vaccinated travellers returning from amberlist countries will be able to do so quarantine-free from the 19th of July. That's not long away, so that is a bit of good news over here. And staying in the UK, I shared my travel diaries in Devon last week, and this week I'm heading further west to Cornwall, one of the destinations mentioned most on the podcast. And it's no surprise why Cornwall is one of my favourite places in the UK too. This was my first time to Watergate Bay, which is a spectacular two-mile beach on the North Cornwall coast, really near to Newquay and Newquay Airport, and also really near to Morganporth and Padstow, where Rick Stein has all his restaurants that he told us about on his episode. It had to be the prettiest beach I'd been to in the UK. A large open bay with the softest golden sand, which at low tide makes the beach look absolutely vast. It's so popular with families and really popular with surfers. It's a big surfing beach. We stayed at the Watergate Bay Hotel in their new beach lofts overlooking this incredible beach. The lofts opened just a few months ago in the building that was previously Jamie Oliver's 15 Cornwall restaurant and they've converted it. And it was just such a unique vantage point to have a room that was surf in, surf out, the sound of the waves just lapping outside the window when the tide came in. You know, I'm often asked of all the places that I go to for work, which I'd choose to go back to for my own holidays. And I would absolutely go back to Watergate Bay. The beach is just so full of life. I loved watching the surfers bobbing on the waves at sunset, the dog walkers, the families, the runners. It was this moving tableau that I could have just people watched for hours on. I did. And there are so many amazing walks in that part of Cornwall, including the famous Bedruth and Steps just down the road. And the hotel has a wonderful spa and amazing selection of restaurants. So, you know, what more could you ask for for a British staycation? If you'd like to see more about my trip to Cornwall, then head over to my Instagram at Holly Rubenstein. I've saved tons of stories and posted loads of photos from my trip there. Next week, we head to Somerset, which I think is a great place to break up your journey from Cornwall or Devon if you're heading back towards the kind of London area. So I'll tell you about that next week. Right, I am so excited for you to hear today's episode. One of the food world's most recognisable faces, it's John Turode. John grew up in Melbourne, Australia, embarking on his culinary career when he was just 16 years old, having learnt to cook from his grandmother who raised him after his mother passed away. After apprenticeships at some of Melbourne's best restaurants, he moved to the UK, quickly making a name for himself as one of the finest chefs out there, opening restaurants like Smith's of Smithfield and Lux. It wasn't long before he also caught the attention of the TV world, and since 2005, he's become a household name as the co-host of MasterChef, which is soon to enter its 18th season, as well as hosting Celebrity MasterChef 2. He's written numerous best-selling cookbooks and made lots of TV shows about culinary road trips in destinations with vibrant food cultures like Malaysia, Argentina and Korea. I spoke to John a few weeks ago remotely. Apologies that the sound isn't as great as it would have been had we met in person. But this has to be one of my favourites just for how enthusiastic John is about travelling and the vivid descriptions of the destinations that he chooses. He gives so many great travel recommendations. So I predict you might be adding some places to your travel wish list after this. From the streets of Thailand to the markets of Mumbai, the islands of Malaysia and the wilderness of Australia. Let's get started. John Tarode, welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. It is so great to be speaking with you today. How are you? I'm pretty good, actually. I'm pretty good. Nice start to the day. The sun's sort of shining. 
which, um, you know, always reminds me of the travels, but there's clouds in the sky. And I think that if I'm on an aeroplane, it's one of those things I love to look at. So, you know what? I'm sort of in my mind, I'm sitting on an aeroplane and I'm going for, I'm going for a little ride. Nice. Going somewhere nice. <laughs> great, great. Well, speaking of which, actually, in this time when travel has been so limited, is there a place that you're desperate to get to? Is there a place that you're hoping to get to first? The, 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 the first thing I want to do is jump on a plane. Right. I love an aeroplane. Do you? Oh, I wish I did. I love them. Absolutely love them. I love them. Um, I love the experience of going to an airport. I love packing the bags. I love um, all the whole build up to actually going anywhere. I love working out what clothes are going to be in what place in the bag and what you're going to wear and what the temperature is going to be like and all those things, because that's the excitement of it. I love that. Mm. I love walking onto an aeroplane and the smell of an aeroplane i like to sit in a seat and you know fumble through the magazines which we won't have anymore because <laughs> you're not be able to touch anything instead so you'll have to do it all on your screen but you know all those things i just love and then you know as you take off and you get to the sky and you look down on that amazing earth and there's some clouds and there's some birds and then further up you don't see any birds but you can still see some clouds sometimes and you know i just love that um mm. and I, I love sort of huge bodies of water and and so, I mean, I suppose as far as where I'd really like to go, I'd like to go and see my dad. Is he in Australia? He's in Australia, yeah. And that's a hard thing to say, really, for me. Um, it becomes quite emotional in the fact that, you know, it's, it's a, a really long way away uh, and I won't be able to see him for a really long time. And you, the fact that you know that you can't go back, I think, is really difficult. Yeah. Um, but in a way, it sort of makes it more important that when we go, make sure we do it really well and, you know, whatever ticket I buy it's going to be a really nice ticket in a really nice seat on a nice aeroplane and mm -hmm. I'm going to stop somewhere and you know and make sure there's a nice lunch when I get there all those things so yeah so you know I, I think that an aeroplane is a fine thing and we shouldn't underestimate the uh the freedom oh yeah it's given us and how the world has joined together in such a way that you know and I remember years ago saying it it, it takes you know, it, it takes less time now for, for us to get food from Thailand than it does for us to, you know, drive over to the south of France, it's you know, incredible. which is an extraordinary thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, that, that for me is, is you know, the aeroplane is, is, a, is a good place to start. Let's start with a plane, a plane or a mm -hmm. boat mm -hmm. or a train <laughs> um, in this anything, world. Of, anything at this yeah. time. Yeah, I do like I do like a posh train as well. I love a posh train. Oh, me too. Actually, just before the pandemic started, I went on one of the Belmond trains, the beautiful Belmond British Pullman, and it um, took us on a little trip around the south of the UK. And there's just this amazing old school glamour about train travel, isn't there? In a way, it really can't be beaten. Have you been on the Orient Express? That's one I dream of. Well, I, I'm fortunate I didn't go on the Orient Express. So the Orient Express is now actually Belmont. So they've, Belmont, they've bought yeah. the whole lot, which is amazing. I'd like to do the Trans-Siberian Express. That's one of my my big Ooh, wish list. yeah. Because I think that'd be pretty wonderful. Um, but I was fortunate enough 20 years ago to do the trip from Singapore through to Bangkok. <gasps> And that was incredible. And it was on the old style express, the Orient Express, um, and, you know, stopped along the way. And it was incredible. It was beautiful. And, you know, sitting on the trains, as you say, with your own little cabin and your your bed sort of folds out and it's a sofa during the day and you've got your own shower and you dress for breakfast and you dress for dinner and um, you go out to the back onto the, the um, observation car and I remember being out in this observation car and coming along and it was beautiful sunshine. And then the next thing you know, it's sheet rain, like couldn't mm -hmm. see a thing. And then we came out of the sheet rain as if we were sort of walking out of a shower and it was then completely clear again. And mm -hmm. sort of amazing monsoon rain that came through, but a, an amazing trip of, of um, three days and two nights. What's the route that it goes? You go up through Singapore into Penang, mm -hmm. so into Malaysia and then up into um, Bangkok and then uh, through Thailand into Bangkok. Mm. so it's it's pretty special and um got off in Pan got in off in Penang and jumped on a, a little ferry and you know wandered around the markets there and jumped out where the to sort of walk towards the bridge over the river Kwai and all those things which was quite incredible and then cooked as well I was fortunate enough to cook on the train um, and filmed it many many years ago on one of my first ever shows called Tarot's Thai Trek which was sort of sort of the start of my love affair with with TV and travel that I got this chance to do it and I didn't have a script and we didn't know what was going to happen and we didn't have a home economist and I had a backpack on my back and a 
chopping board and a wok and a, a mortar and pestle and we just traveled around for 14 days and it was it was pretty special but they, their trains are beautiful and if there's something and i think everybody should do it, that's one of the things they should be doing well looking back through all the tv shows you've made along with master chef i mean there's been so much travel involved so yeah. We've got an awful lot to cover with your travel diaries. Let's get started at the beginning with chapter one. That is your earliest childhood travel memory. Uh, well, I think, you know, you say all these travels I've done. I'm, I've been a very, very fortunate person, I think. But in Australia, you don't really go on holidays. So what you do when you're when you're young is, of course, you you don't sort of go away from your home. And we were fortunate enough to grow up on the beach and and we had our sort of holidays at home. However... My father, um, when my mother died when I was very, very young, my father was was also very young. He was 30-odd years old. Oh, and he decided nice. to go off traveling and um, decided to sort of, you know, to soothe his soul a bit. And he went off to the Greek islands. And we were living with my grandmother. And I said to him as he was leaving, and I was sort of, you know, very young. I was probably about seven or eight. I said, oh, can you take me with us next time? Can we go with you next time? And he sort of laughed a little bit. And went, yeah, okay, fine, fair enough. Anyway, he kept his promise. And um, I was fortunate enough to had my ninth birthday on the side of the Grand Canyon in Nevada. Wow. Um, at the age of just before, in the, on the 4th of July, um, 1974, myself, my two brothers and my nana, along with my dad, um, went to America. Mm-hmm. We got to the airport. We flew across. We went to, we went in through Fiji. Uh, we went in then to into Hawaii. Then we went and flew into San Francisco. And we had we landed in San Francisco on the fourth of July, and we saw color television for the first ever time as children. Hmm. Um, ate American breakfasts. You know, we we became Americans for a month, and we travelled around America. And one of the highlights was going to Nevada and going to Las Vegas and going around that area and and Arizona and Nevada, and then going into the Grand Canyon for my ninth birthday. So we had a nice birthday party on the on the side of the Grand Canyon and and watched the sun go down. What an epic location for a birthday party. Yeah, incredible. And having grown up in Australia, this continent that is separated by a long distance from a lot of places for travel, how did it feel? You say you you love planes now. What was it like doing all that traveling to get to this distant land of the US? I think that's probably where I fell in love with it. And I remember being getting on this plane. It was Qantas plane. We got a bag each because we were very young. We got um, what we thought looked like a pack of coasters, these sort of round, little round plastic cylinder. It was playing cards. And I, you know, I think we had a television sort of screen on the plane, which we sort of watched. But we we're all so excited. And, and it took about 32 hours, I think, to get mm. there. Wow. Now, if you consider that from, a, from Sydney to San Francisco now, I mean, it's very, very different. But, you know, it took a really long time in those days. Uh, jumbo jet. And I remember my dad going off to the Captain Cook's Lounge, which was in the top of a, a jumbo in those days. There was a bar yeah. for anybody who was on an aeroplane and they could go up and they could get themselves a drink in Captain Cook's Lounge. Yeah. And the other thing we had was we had the man who was the head of Hari Krishna's on our aeroplane with us and he was burning incense all the way. So our our, our whole plane smelt of incense. <laughs> and when we got to Nandi, all these people were because we got we didn't have the the auto tunnels and stuff, we had big staircases. And you can imagine getting off a jumbo jet, how big they are, those staircases. And all these people laying prostrate on the ground as he sort of got off and and all these people waiting for him. And all these amazing, absolutely incredible. He was traveling first class. Wow, yeah. And that's amazing. You were nine. And it's obviously stuck so vividly in your memory. Oh, I, I, I mean, I was I went to Disneyland. We went to Hollywood and we went to Universal Studios and Jaws had just come out and... We went to this place where there was water coming down a street. I mean, the stuff that we saw, I mean, these days, most kids would be going, oh, that's lame. But for us, it was just, it was amazing. You know? yeah. um, we had pillow fights in a hotel in Chicago. I mean, it was just where the pillows actually sort of split apart and feathers went all over. My father mm. didn't care. Oh, that's wonderful. And just as, you know, we're talking about how travel memories punctuate our lives. I think you've said before that food memories really do the same for you for me it's absolutely right food has punctuated my life every memory and you know I can remember the pancake I ate in San Francisco when I first arrived I can remember the raspberry waffle I ate in Disneyland I remember the ice cream sundae I ate when I was in New York um you know I remember the baked potato which we had with the steak when we were in Chicago I mean it's really weird I remember this baked potato in foil 
and opening up and it had sour cream on it. And when you open it and you put the sour cream with the potato, it turned texture just completely. I don't know what the steak was like. I don't remember, but the potato was just something really quite mm. amazing. And there were sort of things that we'd never really, really, really eaten before. Um, the hotel breakfasts, I remember them vividly being the most amazing thing, the sort of, you know, mountains of food and most extraordinary stuff. It was, it was just great. I mean, it was just really, really cool. And do you think that the fact that you remember these food elements so clearly shows that that love of food was instilled in you from such a young age that this was always kind of set to be your path? I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, either that or, you know, um, my bro- my brother wanted to be the pilot, so I couldn't be the pilot. You never do something your brother wanted to be. So he wanted to be the pilot. So, of course, I couldn't be the person who flew the aeroplanes. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe, I'm not quite sure. But I mean, I think for me, it's always been pretty fascinating that everything I've always done in my life, I can still remember what I ate when I, and I was there. And it's funny, I, even the guys I work with on, you know, on MasterChef say to me, it's ridiculous. What you remember on the food side is ridiculous of who cooked what when how and what it was and what was right and what was wrong and you know I just you know I certain things I suppose it's that you know it's that sense isn't it I can just I taste it and the texture of it that to me is is so exciting and and you know it does definitely you know play a huge part in my life Mm. okay moving on to chapter two yes that is the first place that you fell in love with the first place I properly fell in love with I think definitely was Thailand um Mm -hmm. i have a very very close relationship friendship love affair with thailand and and um i think because as and i don't know and i sort of tried to work this out so much but the colors the noise the smells the heat and the food you know um the food because i'd never eaten as a child i i grew up and i um was allergic to dairy products I never ate milk. I never drank milk. I've never, I've never drank milk in my life. Even now, I don't drink milk. I think it's the most, I think it's devil's own work. It's the juice of a cow, and I don't think people should have it. Um, I'm not very good with cheese. I made a little bit of cheese, but not very much. I don't really eat cream. So what happened is I don't really have a sweet tooth. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, if you think about all those things, whether it be a rice pudding or custard or anything like that, or cream or cakes, they usually have something with them which is dairy orientated so i've never really had a sweet tooth so for me traveling this world and finding this land where there was this amazing food which was complex in flavor no longer bland because really because i wasn't having butter and i wasn't having cheese and all that sort of stuff and i you know i said about sour cream in in america that's for me having sour cream was like wow i had this thing it was great but there was flavor there was flavor and there was texture and it was vibrant and it didn't just, it just didn't taste good and feel good, but there was sensation. There was, you know, your, your, your mouth would tingle and your, your nose would come alive and you'd hear the crunch in your ears and the smell as you walked down the street and everybody else was really happy. And it was, and it was just sort of absolute way of life. It wasn't a treat. It wasn't a fancy restaurant. It wasn't, it was completely egalitarian and, for me, that's always been my ethos. I think everything should be egalitarian. I think everybody should have the right to the best of food. Um, and I think that mm. that is a really wonderful place. And so, you know, I, I, the streets of Bangkok, the streets of outside Bangkok and um, all those places. And I, I traveled out to meet a lady um, years ago called Kun Pip. And she's got a place called the Thai House. And she teaches people how to cook Thai food properly. And actually teaches you and takes you to a proper market and shows you what's there and, you know, really shops with you and actually shows you proper Thai food. Doesn't cheat on it, but actually makes you real Thai food. And when you eat it, you know, it's nothing like what we get in the shop here or like what we get in a, in a takeaway here. It's not sweet. It's not sticky. It's so clean and fresh and vibrant. And I remember going through Pat Klong to Lat for the very first time and it had mountains of chilies twice the height of me first thing in the morning at 5.30. By eight o'clock, they're all gone. And people would come in and they'd buy all their things that they wanted and then they'd go off. And, you know, alongside that would be pre-made curries because people didn't cook in their own kitchens. They took stuff home themselves. And very few people actually cooked in their own home because it was so difficult. And But people made things and boats would turn up and there was a man cooking sartes and, you know, he just had little sartes sticks and sauce. And it was just, you know, I... I can walk, I can smell it, I can taste it, I can walk through it, I can feel the heat on my shoes, I know what I was wearing, you know, I know all those things. I just I just absolutely loved it. I mean, loved, loved, loved it. And 
I will continue to. Every time I get a chance to get off a plane in Thailand and go into the center of Bangkok, I do it. I love it. And I get lost in it. And it's inspired your cooking, right? Because there's an awful lot of Asian influence. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, it was probably the, the it was the starting point of of the, the real journey of John Road and what my food was all about. It defined me as a cook. It, it took me and, and made me understand what I really wanted to do. And, and I suppose, in a way, gave me a point of difference. Um, yeah. I didn't have to show off the fancy French food. And I remember going years later and working with Philip Howard, who was then at the Square, two stars. Heston Blumenthal, Fat Doc, three stars. Nigel Howarth, who had a place up in, in the north of England, again, starred chef. And I was, you know, John coming out of Mezzo. And I cooked this uh, salty duck salad with a with some green papaya and roast rice and Thai basil. And mm. all of them just went, and they were like, that is the best thing I've ever eaten in my life. <laughs> because it's so very different, but it's so complex in what it does. And it's so incredible because the actual way in which you treat the duck, it's like doing a, a classic duck comfy. The way in which you make the green salad papaya is like pickling a vegetable. So they can all associate with what I was doing but they had no idea how it came together. And it, it sort of it sort of really made me sort of sit up and think, this is really special. And um, yeah, it changed the way I, I am and what I do. And But I also think the culture is amazing. I love the whole uh, Buddhist way of life. I think that's really, mm-hmm. really quite incredible. I love the calmness. I love the smiles. I love the you know, the noise, as I say, the cacophony and the craziness, which is this organized chaos, which is, in its own way, beautiful, and so, so very beautiful, um, and, and it's so exciting. For someone who hasn't been to Thailand, what would you say would be the kind of ideal first trip to dip your toe in the water to get an experience of it? Stay somewhere really smart. So I would say to you, go into Bangkok. Go to Bangkok first and foremost. Yeah. Jump, go and stay at the peninsula, which is a beautiful hotel. And get used to those surroundings first and foremost and get used to that little bit. But once you're at the peninsula, you can walk one of two ways. You walk out the front gate and walk to your right. And if you walk right and you walk along for about 10 minutes, then you turn right again down this little lane. And there's an actual sort of Thai market where all the Thais go and they buy their own food. And if you go sort of left on that street, there's a really lovely little cafe on the other side of that, which does the most amazing lap where all the Thais hang out. So all these people, so there's not very many tourists around. The tourists seem to sort of jump and go, I don't know where all the tourists go to. The other way you can go to the peninsula is you go straight to the front where the river is, and there's a ferry that takes you across to the other side. And when you get to the other side, you end up at the back. There's a, a back of a very weird hotel. But you end up in, if you go there very early in the morning, you literally end up in the middle of a Thai market. And that Thai market is a great introduction. Now, what I'm saying about saying somewhere posh is it gives you a bit of respite because it is so in your face when you first get there. In the same way as I think China does the same. You've got to find a base where you feel, because at the end of the day, we are Westerners and we have a way of life. And you might want a cup of tea with milk in it, in a cup. You may want to have a cheese sandwich because that's what you need. Or you may want to just have a cold beer and look at the river. But give yourself a chance to look at the, the culture a little bit and then go off and then go back to your little base. And use that as your base. And no, you can always go there. But yeah. also just go out and explore a little bit and jump on the boat. Do have something risk. Have a risk. But you know, a took took back to the peninsula was only ever going to cost you at the most five quid. So from there, then you can go up the river and there's this, this what was Pat Plong Talat, which is the the market on the on the water, was originally the food market. Now it's the floral market. And that floral mm-hmm. market, first thing in the morning, is beautiful. And across from that is the where all the kings are buried and in the the whole, you know, the sleeping Buddha and all that sort of stuff. So you, you're sort of pretty close around there to doing some things. Pair of decent shoes to walk in and make sure you wear a long sleeve shirt. <laughs> okay, noted. That's it. And when you get hot, don't worry about it. Everyone gets hot. Stop and have a beer. <laughs> it's fine. Everybody's a bit sweaty. And if you're, you're feeling really bad, go and buy yourself another shirt and chuck it under the take it all on your bag. Well, well, there you go. Good tip. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. 
Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Velour XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travelers just like I do? Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. So you were then doing restaurant apprenticeships in Melbourne, the area where you grew up. And so, you know, what prompted you to move over here to the UK? Well, I, I... I grew up in Melbourne and then I did my apprenticeship in Melbourne and I did my apprenticeship in two places, one of sort of French restaurant and an Italian based restaurant. Um, uh, I was learned Italian at school. So uh, when I was working at Sindos in my early twenties, um, I was talking Italian. We, we spoke a lot of Italian in the kitchen and I loved Italy. I loved the idea of the food. I thought it was great. I loved again, the culture. I loved the way in which it was very generous and very, you know, the food was always very loving in what it gave. Um, never been show off and I've never been a show off cook I've always believed in giving rather than you know pretending it's all very elaborate I like to sort of give somebody a bowl of food and they go oh that's delicious um mm-hmm. and so uh then I traveled I had a restaurant which I went broke at the age of 21 I I uh I, that was my 21st birthday self my 21st birthday present to myself was giving the keys back to the bank manager and taking on a bit of a debt um I went up worked in Queensland and um I started traveling and doing some bar work met a girl who was English and um then that's really where it started and then originally what was going to happen I was going to come to England uh with her and then I was going to go and go to live in Italy but I got to England I ran out of money and um and you've been here ever since I've been here ever since yeah that hasn't been bad though (laughs) I've been very fortunate along the way you know there's been the odd there's been the odd uh speed hump and the odd pothole but actually the road's been pretty good it's been a nice road and it's been mm. an interesting road and i've i've done i've done all right done all right yeah well chapter three is the place where you learn the most about yourself well interesting enough it's and it's something that happened very very recently and it and it, it's ah. the first first thing first place where i've never really been concerned about food in a place called the kimberley uh, the Kimberley in Australia is the far northwest of Australia. It's a piece of land which is three times the size of England and has a population of about 14,000 people in the whole area. It's an area where you can only visit for about eight months of the year because the rest of the time, or actually less than that, six months of the year, because the rest of the time it rains and it's wet. So what happens in the Kimberley is that it has a, a, a two 
two, instead of having four seasons, has two seasons, has the wet and the dry. Mm-hmm. So the the dry is where you can go and you can go and stay there and it's not too bad. And during the wet, it rains. And it rains so much that everything gets washed away. So nothing stays. So you can't, you, there's only a couple of places in the Kimberley you can build a house. There's Broome, which is the capital. And then there's a couple of little places, Kananara, which is down a little bit further in the Ord Valley. Um, and there's the odd encampment here and there. And there's a couple of big sheep, big cattle stations. And when I say big, I mean big. Mm-hmm. Um, they're about a million acres, a million and a half acres. I think there's one which is Whoa. which is the size of Belgium. Right. So they're, they're pretty big. Um, <laughs> wow. And so, but the Kimberley is an amazing place where I sort of realised that the sort of world is a, as a whole is 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 just an amazing place um it, it's a part of the world which um many many years and millions of years ago a part of africa crashed into the top of australia and the result of that is there's what's called balba trees which are the same trees iconically you'll see them in madagascar they're like a round tree yeah. that look like they're yeah, upside down I know them. Yep. Well, they also appear in the kimberley they're the only other place in the whole world where they appear as the kimberley in australia Oh, and right. so um, you've got this amazing world of wildlife, of nature, which has been com- every single year almost gets completely cleansed and gets completely washed away. And the people who have lived there for for centuries are the um, indigenous people of Australia, and they somehow or another have their lives and they've worked out how to to you know their land to move here and move there and become nomadic and move around and get their own food and you know respect the wildlife and everything, but. I learned a lot about myself because I sort of travelled. I travelled on on ships uh, across the coast, all the way along the coast for about 10 days. And I travelled in four-wheel drives and I did things I'd never done before. And just looked at the sky and looked at the earth and, you know, wondered what it was that uh, we were all about. And it was sort of quite a, I don't know, it was sort of a, a bit of a an epiphany, I suppose, a realisation that you don't have to go so fast in life to to have a good one just to slow down a bit and, and look at what's really going on around you, to really sort of understand a little bit about nature, to, you know, feel it, to touch it and to look at it. Mm-hmm. And I were, went off walking to, to, with um, some Indigenous people who were there and we went and saw some, some original cave art, which has been around, and, and the, the people, the local people there, look after it. So there's many, many tribes and different people around of the indigenous people of Australia, and they all have their own areas and their own region. And each one of these bits of cave art tells stories, but they keep on looking after the original art. So they keep on painting it and making sure it's there for everybody to see and for the stories for their next generation to understand. And we went off walking, and there was a, a young boy called Wayne, and young, Wayne must have been sort of 18 or 19. And Wayne walked down with us to this sort of rocky escarpment. We sort of walked down. It was really quite, you know, rough. And there was, mm-hmm. there was lots of low-lying bushes and, you know, scratched legs and all that sort of stuff. And um, he had no shoes on. And he just sort of wandered down. And he got, we got down to the bottom. And we were there and looking at all the art. And he said, I'm going to go back up. And it was about a 30-minute walk down. So it was going to be at least a 45-minute walk up. And we are like, okay, fine. See you in a second. And I saw him go. And then not a sound, nothing, not a rock moving, not a bush moving, nothing at all. I mean, nothing. I saw this, this the back of this, this boy walking up and literally he disappeared into the bush, like, like something from a fairy tale, like something from a fable, like something from a story. No shoes on. And I, we, so I talked to him later on. He said, we, we, we just, we feel the earth. We don't, we don't walk like you. We don't walk with our legs. We walk and we we feel our body feels things, and then that's the way we walk. So this, I mean, amazing sort of things you learn about people and culture and stuff. And I just, you know, the the water and and crocodiles everywhere. I mean, everywhere. It sounds otherworldly, and the, you know, the image of the trees and the crocodiles and the enormity of the landscape. And and, and sort of slightly prehistoric in what we know because there, because there's been no modernization because there's no building whatsoever. Um and there's an amazing piece of rock art which is in, in Mun Park, which is near Careening Bay, which is named after a, a British explorer. And um it shows all these pictures of sea cucumbers and uh what looks like very different looking people. And it, the, the story apparently is that the Chinese used to go to Indonesia and then from Indonesia, they would actually come across and you'd be able to walk from Indonesia to Australia. 
and they would actually stay there for three or four months cooking sea cucumbers and drying them out and then going back to China with them thousands and thousands of years ago. And the indigenous people of Australia were allowing them to come and trading with the Indonesians thousands of years ago. Unbelievable. But of course, nobody could, they could only stay for three months because then the weather changed and nobody could live there. So it's amazing, amazing. Mm. And if, for me, if anybody ever gets a chance, it is a destination that the whole world, although you, you, they only let about 5,000 people a year in because this, it's so small. And But it is an amazing, amazing place. And you, you can't get through most of it without a four-wheel drive. And there's beautiful parts of this, you know, sort of lovely old homesteads that were cattle stations. Um, and there's big old properties which are now looked after by Indigenous people. I went. I went heli fishing, where you jump in a helicopter and you go to a, a, a river and then you go fishing. And as we're fishing, we sort of watch this crocodile go down a little bit further and then, you know, grab an egret and just literally <laughs> take it from the side. I mean, it's, uh, it is prehistoric and it is like something else. You know, they talk about Jurassic Park. It is absolutely like that. Well, John has certainly put the Kimberley on my travel radar and it's just one of the adventures which await in Western Australia. Unspoilt, uncrowded and a bit wild, it's full of otherworldly experiences from lunar landscapes and bubblegum pink lakes to Ningaloo, the longest fringing reef on earth and the only horizontal waterfalls in the world. A heaven for wildlife lovers, it's a place for spine-tingling wild encounters with whales, whale sharks, dolphins, kangaroos and quokkas. With direct flights from the UK, it's easy to start your Western Australia adventure in Perth, Australia's sunniest city, home to 19 city beaches and its own island paradise with the vineyards and distilleries of the Swan Valley on the outskirts and the famous Margaret River wine region just a few hours south. Start planning your Australian adventure and visit westernaustralia.com. Thank you to Western Australia for their support of today's episode. Chapter four then, the big one, your all-time favourite destination. What would you pick? It's really, really hard. I mean, really, really hard. I'm you know, I, I was lucky enough to come out of Beijing and meet a lady at a place called the Brick Factory and then walk up a hill and secretly climb the Great Wall of China um, at six o'clock at night and a double rainbow come along and, you know, there in front of me. I mean, that was pretty special. That was, <laughs> That's unforgettable. Yeah, and I've done stuff like that. But I, I still, I suppose for me, it's always got to be this food, got to be somewhere involved in it. Mm-hmm. And I think probably as far as my, and I'm going to say favour of a destination because it's really difficult to do that because I've got so many other places I still want to go. But um, Argentina, yeah, incredible. Argentina, Buenos Aires as a as a city, um, as as a culture, as people. It's about smiling and laughing and dancing and enjoying themselves and just having the best time and you know the only time that you ever see anybody sort of, you know, beep a horn, then it's because of, of the fact that they want somebody just to move gently. It's not sort of, you know, aggressive anyway. But as far as the, the, the sort of the top, top destination, the place that I think I would love to go back to and just think it's the most amazing place in the world, I would have to say Bombay mm. uh, is a culture like I've never seen. I love chaos. I love chaos when it works. And chaos in India, like that. Um, watching the 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 tiffin wallers with their the cans and understanding how that all works. The food, um, even just walking through the markets and picking up a mango and opening it up and this Alphonse mango, the smell of it, the noise, the walking around, never uh, so safe, so beautiful. The colours, and I stayed, I stayed at the Taj, and in and and I just had the most incredible time and it was beautiful and that was the sort of my sanctuary I'd say to you before when I do that Thailand you find somewhere where it's a sanctuary and you know that you can go back to it but you know it was so extraordinary and so bombarded with everything you know every every minute of every time you walked out the door to the smells and then the sanctuary of this beautiful hotel with this amazing swimming pool and you know sitting down quietly in a room and the noise disappearing and thinking to myself that there's many people in the city who never had that quiet, never mm. had that noise disappear, who've always had to deal with it. And just, I just, I think it's beautiful. 
I think it's extraordinary. I think it's incredible. The food is wonderful and you can eat like a king for next to nothing. Um, it's, it's an amazing, amazing place. I'd love to do more of India. Love to do more of India. Ah, me too. Right, moving on to chapter five. That's your hidden gem. I imagine traveling as much as you have that you've discovered some really special places that maybe my listeners wouldn't know to immediately go to. Is there a particular place that springs to mind? I, I, I love Malaysia. I think Malaysia is an extraordinary culture of people because of what it is and how it is. Um, and it's somewhere that people sort of may not necessarily go to. And it's the islands of Malaysia and that is Penang and Langkawi and Although they are very, very touristy, I think they're one of those places that if you want to go as a sort of as a as a little tourist, then they're sort of you know that sort of thing is is quite good. I suppose it's sort of similar to going to somewhere like um, going to Mauritius or going to the Seychelles or or whatever you know those sort of places. Um, mm-hmm. But for me, there's still you know I, I will always, always, always go back to where I grew up, and that's Australia. Um, and I will go back to Australia and I would head down to Tasmania. Um, and I think it's probably the most underrated of all parts of Australia. It's a tiny island, which is never gets very, very warm at all. Um, it has amazing abalone. It grows the most incredible wasabi. It has a huge, huge Japanese contingent there, incredible art galleries, great seafood, beautiful big trees, huge amounts of forests, great amounts of of people working towards you know being energy efficient and it's just a beautiful country um with plenty to see and it's a place that very few people ever go to mm. um and they never sort of think about it they never sort of want to go mm-hmm. to it and they never sort of go australia or tasmania because it's sort of it is one of those sort of great places that never ever hits the it's the map and i i think it's it's just you've got to go go and have a look great thing about australia is australia is so varied but Tasmania is a sort of very Anglo-sized place. And I think for lots of people who are, you know, who want to go to Oz and see something slightly different, there's lots to see in Oz. I mean, let's be fair, there's loads. I'd say the Kimberley is is still a, a very, very special place. But, you know, go from that end, which is down right down the far south and, you know, on the on the right-hand side of the bottom, go from there and then cross all the way across the top and go to the far top left-hand side and then you've, you've seen a bit of Australia. Incredible, incredible. Well, on the flip side, chapter six is your worst travel experience. Marrakesh was um, my most unfavourite place. I, I don't like the food. I find it really difficult. It's it's really aggressive. And there's not the sanctuary. You weren't welcomed. You weren't welcomed in the way that you would if you went to Thailand. You weren't embraced and people saying, oh, yes, come and have a look or anything like that. Or you know, And, of course, they don't have to speak English because in most places I go to around the world, I try as hard as I can to learn some language and at least try and understand what things are. But there was nothing. Mm. And I got unwell um, and I, I just – it all went wrong. I'm not very good at things like goats tethered to a tree for – when you pull up in your car and you think it's a goat just climbing in a tree and then you realise it's tethered and then some guy jumps out of the car and tells you he wants money for it. It's like, no, no, no. No, no, no. I'm really sorry. Mm. I got attacked by a snake charmer. It just wasn't nice. Oh, that's such a shame, isn't it? I, I mean, I've always loved visiting Marrakesh, but you, yeah, you certainly have to have your wits about you at times. My last guest at the end of last season was Heston Blumenthal. And and we were talking about the worst things he's ever eaten when he was traveling. He talked about how in Iceland he ate some kind of fermented kind of fish that literally like regurgitated out of his throat that he literally had no control over. Have you had any dramatic food travel experiences obviously your palate is so evolved and I imagine very accommodating to contrasting and clashing flavors in comparison to the average Joe but are there things that stick in your mind as being you know not okay no I don't I don't think so I've always I mean I'm always been very very open to anything um anything which is really pungent so I mean I I had some fairly highly fermented tofu in Beijing which was they call it stinking tofu, and there's a good reason for it. It does. It's just it's not very nice. Um, I'm not the sort of person who will go and take a spoon to a, a, a piece of cheese full of maggots. It's not what I would do. So I don't. I don't do that. Um, I mean, I suppose one of the, the most unusual uh, things I've really eaten is in Korea, which is one of the delicacies is to have um, octopus sashimi, 
but it literally they they it's live and then you cut it and then you eat it straight away and you've got to make sure you chew it properly because if you don't the tentacles get cut on your vocal get caught in your vocal cords and they can cause big problems so you've got to make sure that you've got what? to chew it if yeah what happens is that if you go if you don't chew it properly then the tentacles and the suckers get caught in your vocal cords and they can cause damage so you've got to make sure you chew it properly. <laughs> that's about as, as weird as it got. The, the worst thing I've ever... That's pretty high stakes. That the way, yeah, but as long as you chew it, it's all right. I mean, it's plenty of stuff like that. Um, I mean, I think that the, you know, the worst thing I've ever eaten was actually given to me by a, a television uh, crew here in the UK. And I, I, they sort of asked me a little taste test. And it was um, Fern Britain. And she gave me this sort of jelly thing, um, which apparently was a Victorian delicacy. And it was Wales vomit jelly. Um, which had been flavoured with orange oh, and vodka. Oh, my goodness. But, yeah, it was fine. It's just a bit of seawater, isn't oh. it? Really? And then, literally like the complete reverse of that, I'm sure you've been asked this so many times in your career, and that it evolves and changes just like an all-time favourite destination evolves and changes. But if your travel diaries involved you being stranded on a desert island for God knows how long, and you had one last meal to eat, what would you pick right now? Well, I mean, this has always been the death question: what you're going to have on death row, or what you're going to do for your last meal, and all that sort of stuff. And you, you yeah, I tried it, to make it a bit it, more so, paradise. Yeah. Well, mine's always going to be paradise anyway. I mean, for me, that's the thing: is that it has to be on a beach, it has to have water, uh, it has to have sand, it probably has to be something Thai and vibrant, probably like a piece of of, of fish grilled and some, you know, a little herb salad, and probably little picky bits all the way along, and. Um, you know, it would probably involve a glass of rosé and some ice because I'm not really a sort of, you know, I don't mind a, a posh glass of wine, but I think, you know, something like that, egalitarian is a good idea. And, and you know, as long as I wiggle my toes in the sand, the sun is on my head and I can sort of go towards the sea, I think we're doing all right. Mm, sounds good to me. Okay, we're on to the final chapter of your travel diaries, John, chapter seven, and that is the destination at the top of your travel bucket list. For me, I would love to go to the whole top of China, Mongolia, and do the Trans-Siberian Express. Mm. I think as a world which is completely away from everything I've ever known or seen or just to, I don't know, I, I think that it's one of those, an experience, a proper, proper life experience. Um, I mean, right now today, I, I'd, I'd be really happy with Mallorca. And um, staying somewhere you know, on a beach, thanks very much. That would be right. I'd be really happy. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But long term, yeah, I'd love to go into. I've never ever, you know, got into the Eastern Bloc. Um, I'd love to see Moscow. I'd love to see all that sort of culture of what that's all about. I'd love to be, you know, just to. That is for me something really, really exciting. And then from there to get across and get the side Trans Siberian Express all the way across into the top of Mongolia, down into China, and then and finish off there. It's quite a big one. It's quite a big bucket to fill. But um, that is, you know, Belmont guys. If you want me to go and you want me to film it, please, I will do it any time. Um, <laughs> I, I just think it's great. But yeah, I think you know, there's so much of that top of the world to see. I was fortunate many, many years ago to go into uh, the top of Norway inside the inside the Arctic Circle with the, the Royal Marines um, training camp, and just the world of you know the quiet and um, nature and extremes. Yeah, and the other one is Alaska. I'd love to travel Alaska. Another wild frontier. I know. Northern Exposure gave it to me years and years and years ago. I love Northern Exposure as a show. And I just think, you know, going down, walking down the street and seeing a, you know, a moose would be quite good fun. And what about you? Where's your, where's your next, where's you want to go to? Oh, well, by the time this comes out, I'll actually have ticked a bucket list destination off my wish list because I've always wanted to experience the Scottish Highlands. I've heard so much about it and that's where I'm heading to next. And then in terms of places left on the travel wish list, like the enormous <laughs> list of destinations, I think... I think I'd pick New Zealand. It's maybe the most picked bucket list destination on the podcast. And yeah. I just am drawn to the landscape and the the beauty yeah. of it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I, 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 New Zealand, because I suppose it was our neighbour, I never sort of really think about it at all. I know it's very beautiful, but so much of Australia. And I think the Kimberley sort of, you know, ticked those boxes. But um, anyway, I'm sure we'll get there at some stage. When you go to Scotland, are you doing the... 
East Coast 500. Yeah, well, we're doing a portion of the NC 500. So it's a road trip uh, for 11 days from Edinburgh along to Glen Eagles, then along to the West Coast to Fort William, um, and then up to the edge of the Isle of Skye. That portion of it is part of the North Coast 500. And then we're going back through the Cairngorms to Braemar before ending back in Edinburgh. So covering a lot of ground. Enjoy that. Have a great time. I love Scotland. I was up there and I filmed at a place called the Torridon and it was just beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Oh, yeah. The most northerly luxury hotel in the UK, I think it is. It's gorgeous. Beautiful. Yeah, it looks absolutely beautiful. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been so great to chat to you, John. I feel full of wanderlust. John Trade, those were your travel diaries. It has been so much fun thank you lovely to meet you take care oh i really love that conversation thank you so much to john for sharing such evocative memories of his travels around the world celebrity master chef is back this summer on bbc one for its 16th series And thank you so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe on your podcast app so that you don't miss an episode. It's really easy to do that. On Apple, they've just changed it so that you follow rather than subscribe by pressing the plus sign in the top right-hand corner of the app. I would also be so grateful if you could leave a rating or a review. It really helps other people to discover the podcast. To find out who's joining me next week, follow me on Instagram at Holly Rubenstein. I'd love to hear from you. And if you can't wait until then, there's all of season four to catch up on. Thanks again. Take care and I'll be back with you next week. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels easier even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do? Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.